It's my pleasure to be here. It really is a privilege. Uh, I enjoyed our time together yesterday, uh, spent some time with uh, a number of you, and uh, that was just a privilege for me. And to stand up here, it's always a privilege when I get to stand before God's people and, and open his word and speak. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's always fun to come to, to UAC. Uh, 18 years ago, uh, I came as a fresh young seminary student and came under the tutelage of your pastor, uh, who took me under his wing and molded and shaped me uh, to serve in God's kingdom. And uh, the road to recovery has been a long one. <laughs> it's been difficult at times, but I stand before you today by the grace of God. And I want to delve into God's word and share with you, hopefully some insights that will help you in terms of some of these challenging cultural issues. And, and I know they're difficult in the church because the, the voice of culture is so strong, uh, and, and often the church and Christians have felt very, uh, I guess, uh, sometimes intimidated because uh, uh, Christian perspectives just seem so out of step with where our culture is going. And somehow we want to preserve the truth of God's word, but still communicate the love of Christ to every pe- person in our community, in our culture. And it's hard to do that when, when now uh, you, can't, uh, you can't communicate love or so it's felt without affirming uh, every perspective, something we just can't do. Uh, I thought, oh, this is interesting. Thank you for the invitation, Kevin, for me to address a subject like this on Palm Sunday. Um, and yet, as I thought about it, um, it was really, it's an appropriate time. Uh, we think about Palm Sunday And uh, that event, and if you recall from Matthew 19, where Matthew records Jesus, this is is the day of celebration when Jesus entered Jerusalem in that triumphant manner uh, to fulfill the prophecy uh, given by the prophet Zechariah that, that behold, Israel, behold, Jerusalem, your king comes to you humble and riding on the foal of a donkey. And that's how Jesus entered into Jerusalem that day. And that's really what this day is about celebrating, that beginning of Passion Week. It's interesting. I often think about that moment and realize, uh, did they really grasp at all? Who was coming into Jerusalem that day? Who it was that was arriving? And as I think about that, I, I wonder, do we really grasp? Do we grasp who it is that entered Jerusalem that day that we've just spent time singing about and, and, and declaring and the one whose name we, we proclaim to bear. Uh, I want to park for a moment and, and just backtrack. Uh, Keisha read what for me is one of the most wonderful passages of the new, of really of the scriptures in proclaiming uh, the supremacy, the beauty, the wonder of the person of Jesus Christ. And I hope you were listening. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to open there. Colossians chapter 1. This is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful texts of the New Testament. Where Paul writes this, and he's speaking about Jesus. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. It's interesting. Note that uh, whereas we, we know from Genesis, we are ones who resemble God's image created in his image. But Paul says the Son is the image. 
He doesn't arrive in the image. He is the image of the invisible God. We merely resemble something of God in his being, but Jesus is God in his being. We're just made to reflect God's glory, but Jesus is the glory of God. He says he is the firstborn over all creation. Notice he didn't say born first as if Jesus' preeminence was due to somehow his being first in order of God's created work. No, the Son is eternal just as God is eternal, for he is the image of God. No, rather, he is firstborn in the way that every person that Paul wrote to, every person who read Paul's words, would have grasped at the time. He's firstborn in the sense that as firstborn, everything in all of creation belongs to him. They are his by right. There's no argument about rights of possession or entitlement. There's no obligation to him uh, to explain why he has brought things to be the way that they are. There's no negotiating over what part of life belongs to him and what part belongs to us. It's all his. And why? Because Paul says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Uh, whether thrones, in our context, whether that's the prime minister's office or the cabinet or the leader of the opposition or the office of the premier or a little to the south of us, the, the Oval Office, or powers, whether that's parliament or Queen's Park or the U.S. Congress or the Kremlin. Or rulers, whether that's Prime Minister Trudeau or Premier Wynne or President Trump or President Putin or Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un. Or authorities, whether that's the Supreme Court of Canada or the Chief Justice of Canada or the Federal Courts of Appeal or the Ontario Supreme Court of Justice or the Ontario Human Rights Commission or the United Nations Security Council. Whether they make acknowledgement of the fact or not is irrelevant. Every capacity that they have to rule or govern or influence is all owed to Jesus. Because all things, Paul says, have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It it brings to mind the reflections of King David in Psalm chapter 2 when he writes, why do the nations conspire? Why do they make their grand plans and, and seek to maneuver and position themselves in places of prominence? And why do the people's plot in acts of vanity The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his chosen one, his king. And they say, let's break their chains. Let's do things our way. Let's exert our own sovereignty. Let's exert our own rule. We are the ones who will determine the course of our destiny. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. (laughs) If only they knew. And he is the head of the body, the church. If you are a Christian here today, 
And you did not come here this morning for the express purpose of joining with other Christians to meet with Jesus. Then you're here for the wrong reason. If you're not a Christian and you're not sure why you're here, maybe you got dragged here or maybe you took a wrong turn at the lights, I don't know. I'm glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Because you might not be sure about what exactly is going on here and and I'm just delighted to be able to make that abundantly clear. This is what is happening here. This is what this is all about. Here's what it's all about. This is all about Christians, the ones who sit in this room, submitting and yielding their lives to the rule and reign of King Jesus. That's what it's about. So hopefully that helps clarify that for you. And why do we do that? Because he is our head. He is our leader. He is our captain. Which necessarily means that if there is anywhere in the world where the reign of Christ is to be, is to be observed, what does it look like when Jesus rules among humanity that should be observable here? This should be, if you will, a test case or a sample for the world to see. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Oh yeah, Uh, there's a part of creation that we seldom stop to think about and seldom ever consider as one that falls under any authority and that is the lives of every person that has ever lived in history but no longer lives. Those countless dead, including any figure of history you might be pleased to think about, while no longer a part of the living world, they are included and continue to be a part of all creation. And this is why Peter included, if, if you're ever curious why he made that reference in 1 Peter chapter 3 about Jesus, who, after being made alive, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago while God waited patiently for Noah to finish the ark. That reference is there for this reason. So that we know that no matter how obscure an example you might possibly be able to think of, if it is in any way a part, past, present, or future, a part of this creation, then Jesus is Lord of it all. And God the Father has made certain that this is so, Paul tells us, because so that in everything he, Jesus, might have supremacy. So on that Palm Sunday as Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people declared, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord! I I assure you, they spoke better than they knew. Which is why when the Pharisees told Jesus to shut them up, Jesus said, if I did that, the rocks would start crying out. Because none other than the Creator of all the universe had entered the gates of the city. And you're saying, this is so wonderful. But didn't you come to address the issue of gender identity? That's what I've been doing. I've already started. I started at the place we need to start. Because whatever issue or subject or matter it is that 
we as the church need to deal with or talk about or explore or seek to understand, whatever it is, if we do not establish all of our thought and reasoning and understanding on the foundation of the lordship of Jesus over all creation, then all of our reasoning will be faulty. It'll be flawed. We will come up with the wrong answer. Because after all, there are only two ultimate starting points for all reasoning, all thinking, all thought. And that is that Jesus is Lord over all or Jesus is not Lord over all. It's one or the other. So that at least clarifies our starting point, but it does little yet to clarify the issue of gender identity. So what about that? Well, uh, I do want to spend some time talking about that and, and help hope, hopefully giving us some clarity on the issue. Uh, as a precursor to that, though, uh, I want to just talk a little bit about what is our great challenge on this subject, along with many others like it, but, but this one in particular. Our challenge is learning as Christians to respond to these kinds of things with compassion and truth. Sometimes as Christians, we, we like to get focused on one of two extremes. We say, you know what, truth. We, we need to stand on the truth and we need to communicate truth. Don't give, yield the truth. We stand, we communicate, we express it, no matter what. Um, but if we only express truth, um, but it's, we're not careful about how we do it. Truth without compassion, that's just legalism. That's just, this is the way it ought to be. But I think there's another extreme we've fallen into is that we want to show the love of Jesus. What we're all about as Christians is love. We want to express Christ's love, but if we express love to people and let them know we love them, but we don't communicate truth to them, that's just sentimentalism. What good is that? Rather, compassion and truth, this is the way of Jesus. And, and I, it reminds me of that one occurrence uh, in John chapter, uh, chapter 8 where Jesus met uh, or John chapter 8, where Jesus was confronted with the woman caught in adultery, right? Uh, the, the church leaders brought her and said, Teacher, what about this woman caught in adultery? Moses says, We stone her. What do you think? And Jesus, of course, stood up and said, Well, who of you, whoever is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And they all dispersed. And he turned to this woman who was expecting the death penalty. And he said, Woman, where are your accusers? And she looked around and said, I guess they're gone. And he said, then neither do I accuse you, though of all people, he was in the position to do so. Compassion. But then he said, now go leave your life of sin. <laughs> he showed her compassion, but he was sure to communicate what was true, that, that she had a, a sinful life and needed to turn from it and find God's forgiveness. Well, Understanding the issues, how does our culture think about gender and gender identity? I just want to review for a moment what I've observed to be what are emerging as three broad strands of thinking in our culture. The problem on this issue is if it, you find it confusing, it is because there isn't just one stream of thought. There seems to be conflicting ones aside from a Christian perspective. There's one that I've called just the traditionalist perspective where really sex and gender are fixed and binary in people's minds. They say, you know what, it's, it's either or, male or female. And where gender and gender identity are understood as needing to reflect biological reality. That's the traditionalist, that's a, maybe if you want a historical perspective. The way people have generally thought about human nature 
all, forever. Um, and so that's a, a perspective that's still out there. Um, even in academic circles, there's some discussion going on about that. There's another perspective that I've labeled the essentialist, and it's a revisionist perspective. It wants to revise the traditional perspective, but it does so on essentialist uh, grounds. And by that I mean this, that they still want to hold that gender identity is a biologically fixed reality, that the way we feel about ourselves, male or female, is hardwired into our biology but it may not reflect our sexual anatomy. What it really reflects is, and this is one of the theories out there of the gendered brain theory, that gender is more a function of the brain than anything else, and that therefore it's possible that uh, a person could be born with male anatomy, but their brain is that of a female. And so there's this, there's this incongruence, and so they feel this disconnect. And, and so what there is then is that there's a desire to see that these, these binary categories, they're still there, but they can, be, uh, they can be transgressed. You can move from one to the other in terms of uh, your biological or your anatomical or, or, I guess, expression of what you are, male or female. Uh, popularly, uh, it's kind of reflected in Lady Gaga's song, Born This Way. Hey, I was born this way whatever I happen to be. Um, one of the most probably iconic uh, uh, examples of this in popular culture of recent days was Bruce Jenner's transition from being a male gold, uh, gold medal decathlete in the 1976 Olympics to now being, uh, he says, call me Caitlin. It's interesting when he, he, was, uh, he was interviewed uh, by Vanity Fair and he, he made this statement he said, Bruce always had to tell a lie. He was always living that lie every day. What was the lie? Well, the lie was that he was actually a man. He was one on the outside, but inside he was always Caitlin. He says, Caitlin doesn't have any secrets. He says, as soon as the Vanity Fair cover comes out, I'm free. I'm free to be who I truly am, who I was born to be. So that really represents the essentialist uh, position that it's essential to who I am. This is the core of who I am. Uh, there's a third position which I call the culturalist perspective, which is a revisionist also perspective, where gender is purely uh, seen as a social construct and therefore gender identity is completely fluid. What gender is is just what culture has really come up with. It's something that culture sees in, and it differs from culture to culture in terms of how it's understood or expressed. And gender, therefore, since it's a cultural construct, since it's really not wired into our biology, it's a, it's a psychological construct. It's just the way we think about ourselves. Therefore, ultimately, it's a matter of choice. It's how I choose to best express who I feel myself to be. And uh, probably a, more re a most recent Canadian example of this would be uh, Gemma Hickey in September of last year. She won a court battle in uh, Newfoundland to have her birth certificate, the, uh, the gender on her birth certificate, changed to gender neutral. So that was upheld in the courts, and so now that is uh, a legal right. And the comment she made in response to that is, you know, identity is a very personal thing for people, and people can choose for themselves how they choose to identify. Okay? So in that sense, then gender is not really uh, attached to biology at all. It's all psychology. It's all how I feel about myself, and so therefore it's all personal choice. 
Um, it's interesting really that in a way, uh, there is some conflict even between the essentialist, which is a revisionist position, and the culturalist revisionist position, because still the essentialist position wants to argue for a biological fixedness to gender, but it's fixed to the brain. Whereas the culturist wants to say, no, no, gender is not, has nothing to do with biology. It's all culture. And therefore, it's all sociology. Well, uh, quickly, you might be asking, what does science have to say, though? We, we often hear, you know, science is coming up with a lot of findings. What does science have to say about it? Because a lot of people are parking on that. There's a lot of work being done. Um, you have to be careful about how you consult science. Uh, if you have a theory about something, I guarantee, if you go on the Internet, you can find science to confirm your theory. It's pretty much assured. It's interesting, just a week ago, I found an article, I read an article in the London Times that said, this was the headline, Science Pinpoints DNA Behind Gender Identity. It's like, Eureka, here it is, folks. I thought, oh boy. So I read on. Uh, You should always read, anytime you read an article and the headline tells you something, you need to read past the third paragraph, okay? Most people don't, and most writers know that. Okay, I read past the third, third paragraph and I found a few interesting notes where the author said, now transgender men and women, this is the study says transgender men and women may carry genetic variants that influence their gender identity, a study suggests. Dr. Thiessen, who was head of the study, stressed that his team's research was in its early days with a relatively small number of subjects involved and no proof as yet that any individual variant was involved in gender dysphoria or gender uh, incongruence. The study, which was presented this month at a meeting of the Society for Reproductive Investigation in San Diego, has yet to go through peer review. Oh, that's interesting. And some of its findings may be down to chance. But science has pinpointed, (laughs) right? You have to be careful how you consult science. Science is far from objective in many ways, Um, uh, especially when it comes to genes. It's interesting. I just did a quick survey, found a few other articles from the Daily Mail, which is a British uh, paper, that alcoholism, they've found uh, genetic links to alcoholism, that there are genetic markers and genetic determinants. Uh, Also, anger. There are genes that make people more susceptible to being angry people. Depression is also genetically linked. Uh, Let's see what else. Oh, it stopped working. Oh. Uh, genes may be also linked to autism. Well, we know that for sure. There are 17 genetic variants linked to Parkinson's disease. Uh, there is genetic link uh, that's been found to anxiety. Um, given the proliferation of genes and what they do in our bodies, it's not surprising that there's a genetic link for pretty much everything we experience. So, what if science does confirm a genetic correlation? Uh, My response is, so what? So what if it does? Since when does born this way equal should be this way? You You try to apply that logic to almost any other birth condition. You ever seen a baby born with a cleft palate? Should we leave them that way? Because that's how they were born. Born this way and should be this way are two very different things. Science can tell us a great deal about the way we are in a very limited way. It can tell us about the way we are, but it cannot tell us the way we should be. 
Okay, that's outside of the purview of science. Well, what is the truth about gender? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a biased perspective. As a Christian, since Jesus reigns over all, since for in all things, or for him all things were created, my question needs to start really here. Is this true or false? Were all things created by him and for him? If that is true, and if that's my starting assumption for everything, and for the Christian that is, and that's one of the reasons why we're so out of step with culture, our starting point for every value, thought, perspective is the reign and supremacy of Jesus. If that's true, the truth about gender, only God can tell us that. So I want to quickly turn to uh, the scriptures for a moment and ask what God says about this matter. Uh, we turn to really the very beginning. Genesis tells us this, that in the beginning, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So we're told right away that the creation paradigm or the creation design of God for humanity was in two parts. He created them distinctly male and female. But we can ask a legitimate question. Why did God create it that way? Sometimes we just go to Genesis and we say, listen, God created him, Adam and Eve, and that's final, right? That is what it says. But I think it's legitimate to ask and be able to answer, but why? Why did God create it male and, uh, male and female? Why can't we just switch that? Maybe that was just a God's plan for a period of time. Maybe that was just a cultural thing. Well, maybe that's just because God started with two people and he needed to populate the planet. We've already done that, so why not just shut that off and go to something else? There's a reason. It has nothing to do with filling the planet. It has everything to do with this. Because he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The language is very clear. Those two statements are taken as, taken as parallel statements. He created them male and female to bear his image for very, three very specific reasons. The first is this. Is so that we as human beings, uniquely from any other creature or creation could bear witness to and reflect the holiness of God. I want to talk about that just for a moment. What does it mean to say that God is holy? We often think of answering that in, in terms of moral terms. We, we, God is holy in his moral purity, and certainly that is true. But really, a more fundamental understanding of holiness, uh, you look at uh, the Old Testament, and there's a couple of examples uh, that appear in uh, Leviticus and, and, uh, and uh, Ezekiel that I think are very interesting, that to be holy really means to be set apart. Uh, in Ezekiel or Leviticus chapter 10, uh, God's talking to Aaron about the priesthood. He says, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink, whether you go into the tent of meeting when you do, or you will die. Why? Because wine was bad for the Israelites? No. He says, this is a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Why? So that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord's given them through Moses. 
the prophet Ezekiel, God speaks through her, through him, a condemnation against the priesthood because they stopped listening to God's decrees. He said, her priest, he's speaking about disobedient uh, Jerusalem, her priests do violence to my law and profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common. They teach that there's no difference between the unclean and the clean. They shut their eyes to keeping the, the keeping of my Sabbath so that my name is profaned. Moses spoke of God in these terms in his holiness. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in wonder, work, or awesome in glory, working wonders? That God was absolutely unique. There was no one like him. That was a revelation to Israel rising out of pagan Egypt, moving toward pagan Canaan. They were to be unique in that they served the one God who had no equal. God's holiness very much has to do with his uniqueness. Oop. God is holy because he is separate. He is set apart from his creation. You see, the Christian sees the world very differently from everyone else. We see the sum total of all that is as two. There is the creator and the creation, and they are distinct. They are not the same thing. God is separate from that which he has created. Therefore, it's very fascinating. This holy God, this distinct creator, creates. He makes his creation holy by separating things, by setting them apart for their own purpose. See Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. After God had made everything, what did he do? The seventh day, he set it apart as holy. What made it holy? Because he set it as unique from all the other days, devoted to his creating work. Was that an unholy act? Was God's act of creation an unholy thing? No. But the Sabbath was made holy. It was made distinct. It was made with a purpose because on that day, God rested or resided or took up residence in the creation that he had made. He rested there, and that made that day distinct. And I wish I could preach a whole sermon on God calling his creation to enter into his rest. But that's for another day. So what's fascinating to see then is that God's holiness is reflected in all that he created including and perhaps especially our gendered bodies. Go back and read Genesis 1, the creation account through this lens, that God, the distinct and holy and separate God, creates by making things separate. Chapter 1, verse 3, day 1, what does he do? So God created what? Day 1. The heavens and he created the heavens and the earth, he created day one, light and darkness. So he separated the light from the darkness, the day from the night. Day two, he separates the water above from the water below. Day three, he separates the land from the water. Day four, five, and six, he fills this now ordered creation with all kinds. But all these kinds are created after their own kind. Separate, distinct. You can't breed a dog and a cat. Right? 
You can't breed a horse and a cow. They're distinct. They're separate. And it culminates then on day six as he creates humanity. And they too bear witness to this holy God by bearing the mark of distinction. He distinguished between them, man and woman. There is a holiness, there is a set-apartness to male and female intended to reflect the holiness of God. And we cannot transgress that. We can't. Lest we profane the name of God. Secondly, that he made us in his image. Therefore, God said, let us make man. Interesting, the language is in our image. In our likeness. And of course, this is allusion to the fact that we worship a God who is not one but three. One God, but three persons. Existing for eternity in perfect unity and fellowship. He is God in himself. Both one, he is both united and diverse. Genesis chapter 2. Two to three, uh, 21 to 24, God makes Adam. He puts him in the garden. He tells him to start doing his work. Adam could find no helper, so God puts him to sleep. And he doesn't take another lump of clay, right, and just make it a little more curvy and then make the woman, right? What does he do? He puts Adam to sleep, and from his side, he takes from his side and then creates Woman. He takes out of the man, makes the woman, and then brings her back to the man and gives her to him. And what does Adam say? It's, it's marvelous. Adam, his declaration expresses the very reality of this moment that God, who is united yet diverse, has now put the imprint of his being on his image bearers, who he now makes to be both united and diverse. Adam's declaration is, wow, she's now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's now one with me, right? She's one flesh with me. We are now one. But wait a minute, there was two of them. Yeah, but in this marriage connection, in this male-female complement joined by the one flesh union of the marriage bed of sexual intercourse, man and woman joined together in marriage to become one. But at the same time, they are two. She shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken from Ish, man. We reflect the creator, we reflect God's image in many ways, but also significantly in the fact that we are in marriage, we are one. Man and a woman are one in flesh, but distinct, two in persons. There's a beautiful picture going on in this male-female complement that, that isn't cultural. It transcends culture. It transcends the fall It transcends everything because it's directly related to the creator who's made us to be like him.
to reflect his image, to reflect his glory. And lastly, and I think significantly, is that so that we could reflect the creator's love for his creation. And this quickly goes to Paul in in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul talks about the mutual submission of husbands and wives in marriage. And he says, the wife needs to respect her husband. As, his, as her head. And Christ needs to, or the husband needs to love his wife as Christ loves the church. As his own body is the husband to love his wife. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Why? Because for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh because they are one. And so, how can a man hate his own body and not? respect and honor and love his wife. But then Paul goes on and says, this is a profound mystery. But actually I'm talking about Christ and his church. You see what Paul's interested in is helping to give us a picture. A picture of what is, what is the love of the creator? What is his love like? His love for us in Christ. To, to what can we compare the love of Jesus for his people? For the ones he's, he's rescued and called to be his own To what can we compare that? How would we have... Here's a picture. The love of a husband for a wife. There's a picture for you. That's a picture God's given to us. That transcends culture, folks. That transcends the times and the days. That transcends everything. We can't change that. We can't. So then what about those in our culture then who suffer with this sense of gender confusion? And, and this is where I think we need to recognize and as church have some honest conversations and recognize that, that I think there is a place where, where we need to recognize for those who struggle with these kinds of things that for many of us, they're so foreign. We have not done any work or enough work to understand the experience of brokenness that they experience. And I say that because if the statistics are right, then there will be someone here who struggles with these kinds of things. And woe to us if they don't feel that the church is a place that is safe for them to bring any form of brokenness for healing and understanding, right? I mean, isn't that right? What about the person who struggles then? We understand what you're saying. We, we see what God's way is. We, we see what God's reason is for making things as they are, male and female to be the way they are. But what about those who's, who that's not the experience they have? That's not their living experience right now. What about them? That's a great question. We need to recognize something. We need to stop treating that as just a special test case, as something particularly disturbing or troubling or, or whatever. Because the reality is this. For everyone, things are not the way they should be. That's true for every single one of us born into this world. And there's a really good reason for that because sin has separated us from our creator. You see, uh, the Bible tells us we're one being, but we're really made up of some complicated parts. Jesus says we're to love the Lord our God with our heart and our soul and our mind and our body, right? We've got those four. We could talk about those parts. Now, we can't separate them. You can't separate your body from your soul or your spirit or your heart or your mind. I I can't pinpoint in you where you are. If I take your arm off, you're still there. It's not over with your arm. I I can't dissect you and find, oh, there he is, and separate you from your body. We can't. 
We're a composite whole, and yet we can look at these constituent parts because they're very different and they function very differently, yet they all work together. The Bible tells us, though, that sin has alienated us from our Creator, and it has done so completely. We are alienated from our Creator in every part of our being. Which means this, that when it comes to our heart, we experience disorder. Our heart is that which tells us what we want. My heart tells me what I desire the most. In my heart, I experience disorder. In my soul or my spirit, that eternal part of me, that part of me that is to to live for forever and ever, is distorted. It's disordered. It's not the way it ought to be. That's also true of my mind. My mind in sin is disordered, and it's also true of my body. And here's the reality. We are all disordered, every one of us, in all four components of our being, but not all of us are disordered or experience that disorder in the same way. Some of us experience more of it in our hearts than in our minds, or our minds than in our bodies, or in our bodies than in our spirit. We can't pinpoint that. Every person is unique. And how I experience disorder, I can't just put my finger on one thing and say, here's the cause either. We're so complex. Sin is so pervasive. Its corruption on us is so complete. We can't unravel these things with our minds and our heads And yet it's true for every single one of us. So we can't point to any person and say, now you, you are particularly disordered. And so you need special help. We all need help. We are all broken people because of sin. And we come into the church to find a place where we can gather with the rest of the broken and find in Jesus wholeness and healing. That's what's true for all of us. Because remember where we started with the supremacy of Christ? Remember what Paul said about Jesus? Here's how that that passage concluded. He said, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself, that is to make right to himself, to restore to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, all things, by making peace through Jesus' blood, shed on the cross. He says, once you were alienated, you too were separated. You too were disordered in every component of your being, separated from your creator, not fulfilling, not living out the purpose for which he made you in love. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, one who's no longer seen as disordered, but whole and the way you were intended to be. But wait, that's not my experience. No, but that's how God sees you in Christ. And now in Christ, we have this great joy by the power of his spirit to start moving steadily, surely, by God's grace and God's help, to become that which God has made us to be. But that's not a straight line. It doesn't look the same for every person. We all have our own struggles to overcome, and we ought to do so helping one another patiently. 
But what do I do then? If I am struggling with these feelings of gender, what do I do? What's the program, church? You know what? We don't have a program. I don't think we should think in terms of programs. I think, don't get me wrong, programmic ministries are good to the extent that they are useful tools, but the solution isn't a program. It's not a process. It's a person. Jesus says, come to me. I'm broken in every part of my being. What am I supposed to do? Stop thinking in terms of do for the moment. Think in terms of who. Jesus says, start here. Come to me. Don't care how you're broken. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden and burdened by the brokenness of your being that you recognize but but, but you have no idea how to fix. Come to me because I'm gentle and I'm humble. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out, a broken reed he will not crush. Take my yoke upon you, my way of living, my way of being, and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you in return will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The first step, the first thing anyone needs is to come to the person of Jesus, the one who reigns, the one who is over everything, for whom everything was made, including you. To come to the one who is your maker, who is your creator, who is your father for the restoration of your soul. And find in him a new caretaker for your heart and your soul and your body and your mind. And also then one who will give you the identity you need. The identity you're searching for. The identity that the world is telling you you need to create for yourself. No. Jesus will give it to you. He's the the only one who can. He's the only one who can tell you who you are and he's the only one who can give you your true identity. And that is this, that to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the rights to become children of God. You will know who you are because you will be restored to your father who gives you your name. Jesus is absolutely wonderful. We exalt him. We worship him. We love him. And so to a world that wrestles, to a world that is pressuring, to a world that wants to change the way that we think about everything in ourselves, the world that wants to reshape the way humanity conceives of themselves, we need to go with salt and light. We cannot stumble from the truth, but but first and foremost, we need to bring Jesus into the world and, and present him as the only solution, the only truth that people need to know uh, about themselves. Uh, can I pray? And then we'll, uh, we'll close. Lord Jesus, we just, uh, we just exalt and worship you. You are king forever to the glory of your Father. And we thank you that in you we find new life, restored hope, and a new name, You give to us a name that will never perish or fade or spoil. 
You give us the name of children. We become children of God. And I thank you that coming to you, we find not, not the way we can be fixed, but we find the one who can fix us, the one who can make us whole in body, soul, mind, and spirit. So thank you, Lord Jesus. We worship.